0: Thursday, November 1st, 2012. Yep, the uh, year has gone by very quickly. Listening to Fighting for the Faith, my name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Listen, no sinful human being gets a pass. I don't get a pass. Your pastor doesn't get a pass. The megachurch pastor doesn't get a pass. The popular conference speaker doesn't get a pass. (laughs) Nobody gets a pass. Here's the reason why is because you can't trust sinful human beings. Really, when it comes to to this stuff, you got to be listening carefully to make sure what you're hearing is what God's word really says, what God has really revealed, because there's a real danger out there. And that real danger comes under the title, the ominous title of, are you ready for this? Antichrist. You, you're going, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, this is one of the things that bugs me, okay? Is that the term Antichrist, ever since, like, was it the 70s when those uh, Damien movies came out? You know, the, ev- <sighs> there is a lot of confusion about the concept and the teaching regarding Antichrist, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. In fact, uh, I went back through the archives of uh, one of my more favorite theological magazines. Um, In fact, this was a a theological magazine that really kind of helped teach me the basics of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. And it was put together, the, the journals were put together by a group of guys who, um, defected from, I think, the Seventh Day Adventists, and they—they, uh, they, you know, were trying to reach out to them in, you know, through this journal. But um, these guys discovered the Reformation. They discovered Luther and Calvin, and they—and they discovered the real gospel. And one of the things they did is they, well, they wrote again, uh, against the contemporary church at that time. Now, if you know, I had. In fact, I, photocopies of this old journal. The name of it, by the way, is Present Truth. Present Truth. And uh, I, in fact, I think that, you know, and I know for a fact that they have a website that uh, you can view some of their past archives. And it's, it's some, a lot. most of their stuff is very good. There's a, few, there's a few things you sit there and go, uh, 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 okay, but uh, when it comes to you know, kind of b- b- broad chunking the concepts of long gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the imputed righteousness of Christ, and stuff like that, these guys do a fantastic and stellar job. And each, ep- each issue of their journal was dedicated to a different theological topic. And so, because of that, uh, even though they were, you know, these articles were written in, in like the 70s, and I, I don't even know if they made it to the 80s or not, but um, th- that they still have, uh, they're still classic because that's the idea of, about Christian theology: is that it, it never, it, it never expires, it never gets old. And so that's, in fact, one of the things I think is interesting. Is that, uh, you know, I'm four years into doing radio now. I've been doing radio for four years. And uh, and you know, I had a recent conversation with somebody about, you know, what was I, you know, what, what am I going to be doing for like the next four or five years on the program? And it's actually pretty simple. The same thing <laughs> um there are particular theological topics that i try to hit some more frequently than others and the, you know there's the and the idea is, is that the theology stays the same in fact if you listen to the archives of fighting for the faith and you go back to my first year of broadcasting and compare it to uh this current year what you're going to find is is that there's no drift it's not like I've drifted theologically and in, 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 you know, you know, have gone here and then drifted into this or that, the other thing. No, there's really no drift at all. And if anything, there's a deeper understanding of these theological categories. But um, the reason I'm teaching the same thing is because I've been given a faith to proclaim. I've been given a theology to teach. I, I am completely set free from the tyranny of the innovative, I had, and, and that's I think the right way of putting it. Completely set free from the tyranny of the innovative. So, uh, theological topics that you will hear constantly here at fighting for the faith: salvation by grace alone through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, the the importance of proclaiming Christ from every passage of Scripture, the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine uh you'll hear from time to time I'll do eschatological topics. But the thing is, I'm really terrible at eschatology. It's just—it's one of those things where, you know, um, it's super simplistic. Are you ready? The Nicene Creed, I think, sums it up. He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. Pretty straightforward. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. Now, the Bible does give us particular harbingers to look for. Um, But even that word now, harbinger, has been hijacked by the book The Harbinger, uh, Rabbi Kahn's book. But uh, the the idea is this, is that the primary harbinger of the imminent return of Christ is the rise of heretics, apostasy, and the spirit of Antichrist. And this is something we're going to be talking about today. Again, this is a topic that I – well, the last time we talked about Antichrist was the series that we had uh, Kim Riddlebarger – uh, present, you know, uh, uh, during our light editions of fighting for the faith, when he went through his books regarding the man of lawlessness and uh, amillennialism. So you know, we, we don't, we don't do eschatology very, although it does come up from time to time with like, you know, William Tapley and other, uh, other folks like that, because he, here's the deal. Okay. Jesus said, no one knows the day of the hour. Ta-da. <laughs> you know, it's like, there you go. And, and here's the here's the other piece of it is, is that, yeah there's certain things we're supposed to be look for we're supposed to be looking for Christ makes it clear that he's telling us and warning us ahead of time so that we wouldn't caught be caught unaware. Um, but the thing is is that there it the uh, the eschaton is like a woman in labor. This is Jesus's metaphor. Okay, now I'm you know my wife has had three children. Okay, and my youngest is you know she, she's going to be a junior in high school next year. But anyway, so um so. I'm fully conversant with labor, okay? And I don't know if you've noticed this about labor, tends to be drawn out. And what I mean by that is this, is that um, you know, you're not exactly sure when it's going to end, but the intensity gets, it gets more and more and more and more and more intense as you get closer to the big event. Right. Okay. So, I mean, cause you, you, wake up in the middle of the night, your wife says something like, oh, I think it's time. I think it's time. I'm having, Oh, I'm having, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a strong one. Okay. Having a contraction. Okay. And so, you know, you get, you get the, uh, the, you go grab the suitcase, you know, you, you grab your stuff and, and, you, and you go into your, your breathing exercises and stuff like that. You know, you, you, you do all these silly things. And so the idea is, is that, you know, you, the time is coming because you could tell because the contractions are there. Okay, and so that's Jesus's metaphor from the Olivet uh, Discourse about, you know, these are just the birth pangs, you know, all these things that he describes. And so the idea is this, is that there's a day coming when Jesus is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. I don't know when it's going to be. But here's what I would expect uh, to happen, and here's what's happening. Are you ready? The signs of Christ's return in the course of my lifetime have become more intense. Okay? And so uh, I fully expect that, you you know, should I get hit by a bus tomorrow? You know, that my kids, you know, in their lifetime, they're going to see the signs of Christ's imminent return growing more intense over their lifetimes, right? This, well, There it is. You go, I mean, when you read Luther and Calvin and those guys and those guys were, I mean, they, they, they were thinking Christ's return is imminent because all of the signs were there. Right. And the signs that they saw are the same signs that we're seeing today. But 500 years later, those signs are more intense. The contractions are stronger. The, you know, the, the pain is harder and this is what we're to expect. Okay. So when is the, uh, the kingdom of God going to be birthed, so to speak? Because that's the thing we're looking forward to. I, that's the other thing I love about the contraction metaphor that Jesus uses, is that is at the end of the contractions, you don't remember the contractions because of the sheer joy of there's the baby, right? So the kingdom of God... When Christ returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead, a new heavens and a new earth are to be birthed, right? This, this, this is an exciting thing. We're gonna, we don't remember all these contractions, but the contractions are telling us and constantly warning us that the danger that we face is both present and coming. It's now and in the future, now and not yet, right? This, Christianity is a lot like that. I mean, are you saved? Yes, I'm saved. I'm saved now and I have a deposit ensuring the guarantee of the inheritance uh, that won 't show up until Christ returns <laughs> or I die, whichever comes first you right so the so the idea is this is that if we when we read the scripture with kind of a uh, of a less um, exclusive focus on the futuristic pieces of it, then we understand the current danger that we face from false teachers and antichrist and i'm going 'm going to explain what that means. Uh, in the course of this uh, program, um, we, we so false Christ, false teachers, antichrists, and uh, and by the way, it, you know, we're gonna read. I'm gonna read that article second half of today's uh, first hour, uh, but um, you know, we, and the dangers that we face, and know how we can continue to proceed. Okay, as as long as we live on this earth under this current curse that we all suffer from as a result of our sin. This is a dangerous, dangerous place to uh to uh to to live and remember the first sin is a religious sin the re- and the the dangerous sinners out there are the religious sinners, the ones who in the name of God, teach things that are well not exactly in accord with god 's word so to today 's topic a little bit provocative and a little bit off the beaten track but um The idea is this, is that, uh, you know, from time to time I I handle these topics because they need to be handled. They're part of the biblical text and they're part of sound theology. Um, But I always want to handle them, you know, not in a sensationalistic manner because, I mean, yeah, Jesus hasn't told me when he's coming back. And I don't believe the Bible's a code book that you can crack it and figure it all out. You, You understand what I'm saying? All I know is, is that over my lifetime, the contractions have gotten worse. And I don't know if that means the birth is imminent or if, you know, we've got you know, another, you know, 200 years of labor. I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. You know, it's a, the, I, the, these are not things for me to worry about, you know, and they're really not things for you to worry about either. All right. Let's uh, talk about what we do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Got a, uh, you got a, uh, a Patricia King gang video. Uh, Dr. Cl- uh, Clarice Fluitt uh, apparently says you need to control your soul. Is your soul out of control? Well, this video will, you know, apparently solve that particular problem. <clears throat> then what we'll do when we're done with that? We'll take our break, and then we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to. I'm going to read to you a uh, an article uh, called "Antichrist Today." Antichrist today. Strange topic, provocative concept, but really, tr- trust me when I tell you, it's like. When after I after I read this article and kind of lay this all out for you, you're gonna sit there and go, you know that makes a lot of sense now I get it and it's like, ah, it, you know and so the I the, listen if you're thinking about Antichrist exclusively as that guy coming, you know, you're missing the boat. <laughs> Antichrist is here and he's coming. And there's lots of Antichrists out there, especially if you understand what the Greek text says when it uses the word Antichristos. When you're going to sit there and go, wow, I never knew that. I could have had a V8. You know, something like that. So, And then hour number two, we spent <laughs> it, it, – you know, the last time I uh, reviewed anything by Stovall Weems was at the Code Orange revival. But we're going to be going down to Celebration Church, Jacksonville, Florida. To Stovall Weems's church called Celebration Church, and listening to a sermon, reviewing a sermon called "Stuck in a Rut." Are you stuck in a rut? And uh, and so I the, here's the fun thing about this particular sermon. I have not listened to the whole thing on purpose. I you know this is one of those ones where I I want I'm going to attempt a little bit of a cold um, review for at least the two thirds of of uh, the sermon. I've I've listened to a third of it. I think I know what's going on in this sermon, but I don't. I can't say with definitiveness. So that means that you know, I'm. This is going to be one of those times where I'm going to attempt the majority of the sermon cold. I have, so, which means I'm going to have to have my Bible ready. You know, you know, notes. Be ready to take notes. This, you know, this could flop. I mean, this this just could be a disaster. <laughs> so, with that we are going to dive into the program proper please uh, you know take all the proper necessary precautions you may hear some strange things today um, make yourself comfortable fuzzy bunny slippers you know the whole nine yards but uh, with that here we go we're gonna dive into the program proper so um, have you been wondering how you know to get some practical advice practical advice is your soul out of control well, um, for the first time here on Fighting for the Faith, we're going to be reviewing a video from XP Media by a gal by the name of Dr. Clarice Fluitt, and Dr. Cla- Clarice Fluitt is going to explain to us how we can control our soul. It sounds pretty straightforward. Here's Clarice Fluitt to explain the details.
1: Hi there. This is Dr. Clarice Fluitt, and I am so happy to have the opportunity to share the wonderful Word of God with you today. We've been studying from a CD series that I have.
0: Stop. <laughs> Question. Um, are you a pastor? Mm, probably not. Um, um, you shouldn't be a pastor if you are. So what? A, what's your qualifications um, to teach us the Word of God? The reason I'm asking is because there's a biblical prohibition against women teachers and preachers and you know, things like that. Um, so my my question is, you know, right off the bat, you know, is, is the reason why you're on Patricia King's XP Media website doing these little video things because you're basically sticking it to the uh, the church man? I'm just a little off topic there, but we continue.
1: Understanding the times today, I'm going to be talking to you about controlling your soul. Mm. I'm telling you what is.
0: It- <laughs> hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. She's telling us. Yeah. Troll your
1: soul. Mm, Okay. The soul, intellect, reason, emotions. We can just spout those words off pretty carefully. But the way that I like to see this is that I am a spirit. I have a soul and I live in a body. Proverbs says something quite interesting. It says it's a shameful thing for a slave to rule in the house of a king.
0: And that's talking about the soul.
1: Give you an example. Have you ever been in a real nice restaurant and a couple comes in and they bring their child that screams and yells and throws food and causes havoc in every direction?
0: Now, I've seen this, but not in a nice restaurant. Yeah, I can't afford those, but
1: okay. And how you would long to be able to either spank the parents or the child and say, control your child. This This is not acceptable behavior. Our soul is really that area that makes all the decisions. The scripture says...
0: Okay, so is my soul like a misbehaving child?
1: God saves the spirit. Man saves his own soul. And we're transformed. But the
0: scripture says man
1: saves his own soul.
0: Um, where?
1: What translation are you reading from? Are metamorphosed through the renewing of our mind, through the washing of the water of the word of God. Now, the way you do this... You're never going to get anything from God except through your mouth. You're going to have to open up your mouth.
0: So you don't get anything from God except through your mouth. Mm -hmm. What if you're born mute? Can you not be saved? I think it's a legit question. I think there's been lots of folk who have been born with an inability to speak. What if you lose the ability to speak? Are you cursed and have now lost all control? What is this theology, and where'd you get it from?
1: And say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of words, which is voice activated.
0: So my soul. Okay, stop, stop, stop. Okay, where is where does it say the kingdom of God is a kingdom of words that is voice activated? Do you have a Bible passage that teaches this particular concept? I'm not familiar with that teaching from the Bible at all.
1: my intellect, my reason, my emotion. I'm reminded of the time when the angel of the Lord spoke to Mary and said, Thou shalt conceive and bring forth the Savior of the world. And she says, Oh, how can that be? It wasn't like, I doubt it, like Zacharias did. But she says, How can that be, seeing that there's no natural explanation? And the angel of the Lord says, I'm really glad you asked that question because with God, all things are possible. And so she ponders these things in her heart, and she goes to see Elizabeth, who has had a, an experience similar to her. Same angel had come and spoken to her husband that in her old age that she would...
0: Notice she's not actually reading the biblical text. She's in control of the narrative here. <clears throat> Bad sign.
1: Have a baby, and his name would be John. And, of course, you know the story. John was the prophet that God had prepared to... Prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. So the two meet. I love this. This is when Jesus and Mary, when the Messiah, when the anointed goes looking for the prophet, when the Savior goes looking, when Jesus goes looking for John. And
0: um, when Jesus goes looking for John. Okay. um Hmm. Who was doing the looking and the walking? It was Mary. It wasn't. Okay.
1: The only way they can get there is in a body. Nothing manifests in this world without a body.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's pretty clear you haven't actually taken any basic hermeneutics courses. You sure you're qualified to teach the Bible? I mean, see, I don't know what kind of doctor you are, um, Dr. Clarice Fluitt. Uh, but let's pretend for a second that you're uh, a PhD. You know, uh, not a PhD. No, let's let's tell you what—that you're a medical doctor. Let's pretend that you are a medical doctor. Okay. Now, uh, in order to be a medical doctor, you have to have been to medical school. You have to have had a residency. You have to have ha- passed medical boards. You know things like this. Uh, this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing because, trust me, the last thing you want to do is visit. A doctor, a doctor's office, and have the doctor tell you, yeah, you know, listen, I bought the Time Life series on on, uh, on home surgery, you know, and uh, I, you know, studied those books from cover to cover, and I'm, re- I, you know, I'm really qualified to be a doctor because, you know, I did the Home Depot series on do-it-yourself uh, medicine. Yeah. You, you, they said something like that. You should be like, I am just like not going to let you touch my body because I'll be dead. Right. You would do that. Same thing here. Okay. See, I, again, Dr. Clarice fluid. I have no idea what kind of doctor you are, but if you were a medical doctor, I would expect that you had, you know, that you went through all the, in, the appropriate steps to be able to practice medicine. Now, Already, I mean, we are only two minutes and 43 seconds into your video ministry um, presentation here about controlling your soul. And it's very clear, very clear that you don't know what you're doing when it comes to the biblical text. Like, not at all. And um, see, the thing is, is that somebody who's supposed to teach in the church is supposed to be somebody who's studied shown themselves approved a workman who need not blush with embarrassment who can rightly handle and divide cut the word of god see you no know, this little thing that you're saying you see jesus you know in utero went looking for the prophet mhm and that see and this somehow proves that uh you know that you you have to have a body that can do the whatever yeah this you, this has nothing to do with those texts like at all um it's pretty clear you have no clue what those texts are saying therefore, you're not qualified to teach. You you really need to hang this up. You're going to hurt yourself and hurt other
1: people. We are the body of Christ, and we're the arms, the legs, the feet, the tongue, the the body that reaches out to express what is on the heart and mind of God, learning to be led of the Spirit. So when Elizabeth hears the voice, the frequency, uh, the voice of... <laughs>
0: The frequency, okay, because you know the kingdom of God is a kingdom of words. It's a voice activated. No Bible passage says this, but okay.
1: Mary and Mary said a very profound thing. She said, "Hello, Elizabeth." It he says, "At the sound of your greeting, the babe within my womb leapt. He was filled with the Spirit of God. At the sound of the voice, at the sound of the voice, you have a voice print. At the sound,
0: uh, <laughs> um, you are aware that Mary is carrying God." In human flesh in utero, right? The whole point is that passage is about what? Who's that passage about? It's about Jesus. Who did Luke write about in the Gospel of Luke? Are you ready? Not you, not me, not about our voice prints. No, he was writing about Jesus. The Bible's about Jesus. It's not about your voice prints or any of this stuff. You have no clue what the Bible's about, do you, Clarice? The
1: sound of your voice. There are things that leap and jump and rejoice, and it's the sound of the voice that we release the word of God.
0: Uh, yeah, so when the sound of my voice, there's things that leap and rejoice because of the sound of my voice. Give me a break. Yeah, I'm a sinner, okay? I'm the one in need of a Savior. You, you tell me about Jesus and stop talking about this voice print stuff.
1: Immediately, immediately, little Mary begins to prophesy, and and I find this amazing. She said, my soul doth magnify the Lord, but my spirit doth rejoice in God who is my Savior. Now, what she's saying here is my intellect, my reason, and my emotion has to magnify the Lord.
0: Yeah, I don't think so. Just a, a, a teenage first century maiden, um, you know, that's not what she's thinking at all. Doesn't even sound remotely close to <laughs> the history and time and what would, would normally be considered by a young first century teenage maiden, you know.
1: Now, to magnify something means you're going to have to make it larger. Now, we cannot magnify the Lord by ourselves. The scripture says, Come, let us magnify the Lord together. Because. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is, is this a joke. I, this is so bad. I mean, seriously, this would be like somebody saying, "Did you know the God's a big chicken?" No, I, I had no idea that God's a big chicken. Yeah, it's because you know, Jesus, he said that you know, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem." You know, uh, know, I wanted to comfort you like a hen comforts her chicks. So Jesus is a big chicken. And Jesus is God, so God's a chicken.
1: (laughs) Say I've got a magnifier I can do 10 times. And you've got one that you can do 20 times. And he's got one that can do five times.
0: Five times magnifying. Got it. Okay. Is each one of us. Can we auction this stuff off? You know,
1: I'll take five, 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 five,
0: five magnifications over there. Ten, ten, ten. Oh, well, did anyone got a 20? Yeah, I, I hear 30 over there. Oh, oh, oh
1: yeah. Again, to magnify the Lord with our comprehension and understanding. It never makes God bigger. It makes our understanding of him larger.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Um, question. Um, this Dr. Um, Clarice Fluitt. Um, During the 60s, uh, 70s, during the 70s,
1: were you ever, at, did you ever take any illicit narcotics?
0: You know, I'm just trying to figure out if maybe there's some brain fry going on here.
1: So as she began to say, my soul, my intellect, my reason, my emotion, it's going to make God big because I am in a situation. I am in a crisis situation. There is no home for unwed mothers. it's just a different day and a different time. Here she is. She's engaged. She's in a crisis situation. So she's looking for someone who has a like experience to be able to talk to.
0: Where did you get this? I mean, folks, what is the point of having a Bible that you can read? You know, that's the point of uh, a Bible teacher is supposed to actually exegete, you know, read the text what's the point of having a bible if you're not going to actually read it and teach it i mean what is it that nowadays we've got all these people who are just making stuff up but somehow trying to pin it on the bible uh, but they're never reading the bible when they're doing it
1: when you hear a word from god don't just go out and have share it with just anyone Uh hold these things in your heart so they'll not be stolen from i'm not mary
0: I'm not the Virgin Mary. I'm not going to give birth to the Messiah.
1: <laughs> the soul is so important and significant. Yeah. The soul is that part. Be transformed, be metamorphosed through the renewing of your mind. I,
0: I, I guarantee you, if we had a scientist listening to this, they could not diagram this 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 presentation. These are non-lucid, completely disconnected and discombobulated thoughts.
1: Pulling down the strongholds of vain imaginations. And you think, well, wait a minute. If you put R-E in front of something, there is an assumption that it once was. To renew something says it once was new. And I said to the Lord, when was my mind new? If I'm transformed through the renewing of my mind, he says, I am the father of all spirits.
0: So you're now getting direct revelation. <laughs> right. Right.
1: He says, eternal life is not long life. It's the same quality of life that I live. So really, you've always been and you always will be.
0: Thank you. Oh, no, no, no. See, this is, this is flat-out heresy here.
1: About that. You are a spirit that has a soul that lives in a body. Your body is ruled by five senses. What I see, what I smell, what I taste, what I feel, what I hear. Those are like... Yeah,
0: hang on. I smell heresy.
1: Five professors that are feeding information from the natural world until the soul is transformed, Uh metamorphosed to agree with God. (laughs) Really,
0: where are you getting any of this? What Bible? Yo, you're not really reading a Bible passage. See, that's a problem, don't you think? Somebody claiming to teach us what the Bible says without actually, you know, opening it and exegeting it. See, that's the thing. If your mind is really held captive to the word of God, your conscience is bound to what God has revealed, then you're going to pay attention to what God has revealed and you will not teach anything more or anything less than what God has said. Where God is silent, we do not speak. Where God has spoken, we speak with confidence. What this is, I have no idea where any of this stuff is coming from. I have to assume two things. Okay. Well, number one, I know for a fact it's not coming from the Bible because the Bible doesn't teach this. But so, therefore, I'm left with a couple of options. Okay. They're not, neither of them are good. Okay. Option number one, she has received these ideas directly from demons. Not a positive thing. Um, Second possibility is that she's just a loony and just is making up her own stuff here. Um, neither option is good, but I can flat out reject literally everything she said so far because none of it is based upon a careful reading, exegeting, and teaching of what God's Word says in context. And see that that is the tool of the Antichrist. And we're gonna talk about that in a little bit. Antichrist. Oh, that word again. Yes. See, that's that's the method of the Antichrist. That's the method of Antichrists. We'll talk about that. To take religious concepts and ideas and twist them and get your focus off of the real Christ. I know that's we're going to end right there and we're going to take our break and pay some bills. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Antichrist today. Strange topic here at Fighting for the Faith, but one that I think you will find. To be beneficial once you hear the whole thing out. So, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We will be right back.
2: It's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're
0: tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage. A new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide.
3: Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website worldviewweekend.com and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse It's 500 pages, over 600 footnotes. Now while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com.
0: Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well-thought-out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious. From wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life, trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny and the geek in your life will really enjoy them again pirate christian radio.com forward slash geek all right we're back Warning, beware of people who tell you they're teaching you the Bible, but it's weird. They never actually open it and read it and exegete it and teach it. That means they're probably not qualified and they're not teaching you the truth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says, Donate. The other says, Join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we do without it. All right. Moving along here. From the archives of Present Truth magazine, from their Australian forum, the name of the uh, article is Antichrist Today, Antichrist Today. All right, now, I know this topic is going to be provocative, but it's really not as crazy as you might think, okay? And, And that's actually on purpose, because it's biblical. Whoever put this together really knew what they were doing and did a fine job of kind of explaining how... If you have a futuristic view only of the coming Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, you're missing the present danger that we're in. Because the Apostle John warned us about Antichrist and Antichrists. See, the, you, you, you get what I'm saying here. There's something going on here that we all need to uh, <clears throat> understand. So, and by the way, the, this, there is no byline here, so I, I'm not sure who did the work on this. But I thought this was a fantastic article worth passing along and give, to give you something to think about regarding this topic. Here's what he says. The, word, the actual word antichrist is used by only one Bible writer, by St. John in his first and second epistles. However, it is generally recognized that the Apostle Paul refers to the same figure in 2, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he warns the church about the man of sin or the mystery of lawlessness. Few figures have stirred the imagination and anxious forebodings as much as the mystery figure of Antichrist. As different generations of Christians have scanned the horizons for signs of the end of the world, they have thought to have discovered the Antichrist in such men as Nero, Constantine, Napoleon, Hitler, or Stalin. Not to be discouraged by other... uh, Precocious attempts at identification, some wild-eyed apocalyptic enthusiasts suggest that Dr. Henry Kissinger is the long-looked-for antichrist. <laughs> yeah, I, <clears throat> I remember having a conversation with somebody once, and they told me that Nancy Reagan was the antichrist. So this kind of tells you that this, this article goes back a little bit. After the passing of the apostles, okay, this this next section, by the way, is called the views of the early church. After the passing of the apostles, it was generally supposed that the great enemy of the church would appear on the scene after the downfall of the Roman Empire. Antichrist was thought of in terms of a grotesque, superhuman antagonist of the Christian faith who would make war on the church sometime in the future. Thus, the view of the early church was futuristic, although, The type of futurism then espoused was quite different from the futurism which is popular in the evangelical wing of the church today. Now, here's a summary of the view of the Reformers, by the way. Now, in the 16th century, the church was awakened and shaken by the evangelical revival known as the Reformation. Although there were several branches of the Reformation and there were points of disagreement, there was complete unanimity uh, on two things— 1 the reformers came to be united understanding on the meaning of justification by faith they un, uh, they unanimously upheld its primacy and centrality in the in christian theology the reformers came to be united this is number 2 they came to be united understanding that it was the work of antichrist to oppose and corrupt The glorious gospel truth of justification by faith. To the reformers, justification by faith was the great truth upon which the church stood or fell. To take this away was to take away the very life of the church. No greater harm could be done than to rob the church of justification by faith. And since the religious establishment of their day opposed the Great Reformation doctrine, the Reformers unitedly declared that the that, that revered religious establish- establishment was Antichrist. Okay, talking about the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy. Now, it's hard for us to appreciate the daring and the very shocking stance of the Reformers. In their day, there was only one church structure— Uh, "...reverenced for centuries, it was seen to be the holy city on earth, the very gate of heaven. To call it Antichrist was worse than pointing the incriminating finger at your own mother. Nor can we appreciate the Reformers' conviction on this matter, for it was a sincere theological conviction, unless we appreciate how strongly they felt about the importance of the subject of justification by faith." Whatever we may think today about the Reformers' view on Antichrist, we have to acknowledge that they were so widely held by Protestants for 300 years that they became known as the Protestant view of prophetic interpretation. Okay, Next section is called the Views of the Counter-Reformation and Modern Futurism. Naturally, "...the established church was not going to appreciate the damning appellation of Antichrist. Being challenged to present a plausible alternative test of evangelical orthodoxy in some circles, interpretation of Bible prophecy, Jesuit scholars rallied to the Roman cause and presented what became known as the Futurist System of Interpretation. In this, Antichrist was said to be still future and therefore could not be the Papal Church." 300 years later, these same futurist views took root on English Protestant soil, and today they are so widespread among evangelicals that they are almost a test of evangelical orthodoxy in some circles. So, the next section is called the Biblical Perspective. Whether we subscribe to the Reformers' view that Rome... Is, is Antichrist, or to the popular evangelical views of today, which declare that Antichrist is yet to come, we are still in danger of missing the vital biblical message about Antichrist. If we content ourselves with the thought that the Reformers were correct in their identification, we are in danger of blinding ourselves to the biblical warnings with a sort of Pharisaical complacency or Protestant self-righteousness. If we gaze off into the future, especially looking to events among the Jews in the Middle East, we will also fail to be aroused by the biblical warnings about Antichrist. For what the Bible has to say about Antichrist is not given as mere information, and certainly not information to gratify or titulate idle curiosity about the future. What the Bible says about Antichrist is to warn and activate Christian congregations. The Bible presents four outstanding features of Antichrist. Number one, the religious character of Antichrist. Pay attention to this part. This is the part I've been kind of hinting at for a while. The Greek prefix, anti means in the place of, or in the stead of. Now he's absolutely correct here. So when you, the the Greek word for Antichrist is Antichristos. Okay. It's so the ante in front of it, that, that prefix, means in the place of or in the stead of. In English, we think uh, the ante means to be against something. But that's not really the, the import of the Greek uh, prefix there, ante. So I'm just clearing this up here. So uh, let, me, can, let me reread this again. The Greek prefix ante means in the place of or in the stead of. It may also contain the idea of substitution. For instance, when Paul says that Christ, quote, gave himself a ransom for all, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, he does not use the ordinary word meaning ransom. That would be the Greek word lutron. But he uses the prefix anti and then the Greek word lutron. So the word itself comes out anti-lutron. Girdlestone, as well as other linguists, points out that the word literally means substitutionary ransom because of the word anti in front of it. So, Antichrist, therefore, refers to some figure who puts himself in the place of Jesus Christ. He is a substitute Christ. Standing in the room of Jesus Christ, he tries to carry on the work of Christ. Yet his gospel is really another gospel, says J.C. Beckauer. Quote, "...the religious character of the opposition preoccupied the Reformers. Theirs was not just the bitter tone of anti-Papism." They were predominantly concerned and anxious about the well being of the church for the reformers. The Antichrist was the more dangerous was all the more dangerous because he donned this religious cloak during the Reformation. This theme of the Antichrist taking his seat in the temple of God, see second Thessalonians chapter two verse four was taken very seriously. The temple was not in Jerusalem. But the temple was the church, and the Antichrist's strategy was primarily to drive the true God out of his temple and replace him. Okay? This is from Burkhauer's book, The Return of Christ. Now, this is important. Okay? when you know, There's a lot of theological speculation that's looking for a rebuilt temple, because the prophecy in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 is about how the Antichrist takes his seat in the temple of God. But keep this in mind. For Paul, all of the mosaic uh sacrifices were pointing to the one true sacrifice, and that 's Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, uh you know who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the one sacrifice that propitiates the wrath of God, and Jesus Christ you know is the fulfillment. Uh, uh, he's the reality. All the Mosaic sacrifices are the things pointing to it. So when Paul here talks about the Antichrist or the man of the lawlessness taking his seat in the temple of God in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, he's not referring to a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about the temple of God that Paul refers to in other epistles, namely the church. Okay. This is I know this is a crazy, for those of you who have never heard this, you're sitting there going, I have never heard this before. Trust me when I tell you that this is the view that makes sense. We're not looking for um some Middle Eastern war to break out, for the dome of the rock to blow up, and then for Israel to build the temple. That would be actual blasphemy. The re-institut- the reinstituting of the mosaic uh animal sacrifices. Who that's not what we're looking for at all. The temple of God now is the body of Christ. It's the church. So the Antichrist takes his seat, if, if, if a position of power, within, he seizes power within the visible church. That's, I think, what Paul's getting at here. That's what uh, Burkhauer is talking about. Now, number two, the present reality of Antichrist. The article continues. Now, in the, uh, John's Antichrist was not merely a future identity he was also a present reality and this is what it says in uh, 1 john chapter 2 18 and 19 little children it is the last days and as ye have heard that antichrist shall come even now there are many, many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would not they would uh, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not they were not all of us. Okay, Second John verse seven says this: For many deceivers have entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist or 1st John chapter 4 verse 3 says this every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of god and this is that spirit of antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come and even now is in the world so the apostle paul also declared, "Quote the mystery of iniquity doth already work," and that's Second Thessalonians chapter two verse seven. So, Antichrist must always be seen as a present reality in AD sixty five in in five seventeen uh, AD, or even today. Antichrist's appearance belongs to the last days, and according to St. John, the spirit of Antichrist manifested in the false teachers was a harbinger of the end times. The church is an eschatological community which has in the gift of the Holy Spirit the down payment of the inheritance, and as God's people, wait for Christ to return. They must realize that they live in the hour of the working of Antichrist. We must not deny that Antichrist will have a future and final manifestation, but the trouble with the thoroughgoing futurism is that it is blind to the present reality of Antichrist. Now keep in mind, Antichrist replacement Christ this is you know a Christ that exalts himself and replaces the real one right so if we do not discern the work and forms of antichrist from new testament times especially the great papal antichrist how can we discern the work and form that he will assume in his final eschatological manifestation the biblical warnings do not merely tell us that the hour is coming but they declare that the hour is coming and now is When the church lost the clear biblical truth of justification by faith, it also lost its clear eschatological vision. The last day became an event in the far distant future, and the church's uh, mentality was decidedly futuristic— with the rediscovery of justification by faith in the 16th century, eschatological hope revived and the church again saw itself living in the end times. J.C. Burkhauer says, quote, Luther felt himself surrounded by great eschatological tensions, and part of this for him included the role played by the Antichrist. For Luther, the Antichrist was not a remote figure of some future end time, but a threatening and dangerous possibility each and every day. The main point was that the danger was present, not just relegated to the future. Clearly, the actuality of the Antichrist as portrayed by John accords with the entire eschatological proclamation of the New Testament. Altus uh, uh, correctly observed that the New Testament proclamation of the Antichrist is not an irrelevant prediction of some remote future, but an alarm signal. The Church must always look for the Antichrist as a reality present among it, Or as an immediately threatening future possibility. The recognition of the Antichrist is a deadly serious matter. All other talk about Antichrist is idle and irresponsible play. Okay, great quote. End quote there. Now, as history moves on, the church is challenged to see the configurations of Antichrist in his most current form of opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Antichrist beast of the revelation has seven heads, which symbolize the different forms he has assumed in his opposition to God's truth from one age to another. It is not good enough to see the guise of Antichrist in AD 65 when John confronted the Gnostic heresy or in 517 when Luther nailed his protest on the door of the religious establishment. Antichrist is a present reality. We must see how he is working today. Next point, the internal danger of Antichrist. To look for Antichrist as a foe external to the church is to miss a vital part of the biblical warning. Antichrist is not merely an enemy at the gate. He has already infiltrated the city. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing among the flock. He looks like a lamb, but speaks as a dragon. He is, as his name suggests, a masquerader of Christ, and his message is a substitute gospel. The warnings of John and Paul make it very clear that he proceeds from the church itself, quote, Because the danger comes from within, the church has added reason to beware in her own existence. Point number four, the human form of Antichrist. Finally, it is a mistake to look for Antichrist in the form of the bizarre, the fantastic, the superhuman, or the grotesque. The Bible stresses his very human configuration. He is called the quote man of sin, Second Th- Thessalonians chapter two verse three. He has a human number, Revelation thirteen eighteen. He has eyes like the eyes of a man, Daniel chapter seven verse eight. Certainly, he has donned the religious cloak, but we must remember that as Luther so clearly perceived, the chief human sin is the religious sin. What is clear in the New Testament references to the Antichrist is that this is not a supernatural or superhuman concept, but takes place and manifests itself on a human level. Behind the Antichristian powers, the shadow of the demonic may fall, but with the concept of the Antichrist, we find ourselves not on some remote evil terrain, but on the well-known terrain of our daily human existence. Indeed, the human level of the Antichrist is one of the most compelling messages of the New Testament. It is a human force, a human anti or a human replacing that elevates itself and uh, disintegrates through the victory of the Lamb. So let us conclude by saying that the real force of the biblical picture means that Antichrist is religious— And not irreligious present and not just future internal and not external the familiar the familiar the familiar human and not grotesquely superhuman this means that we cannot afford to gaze back to the remote past or forward into the distant future Identifying Antichrist today is not a matter of throwing stones at Rome or the liberals. It's a matter of searching our own house and hearts and allowing the biblical message of grace alone, Christ alone, and faith alone to call all that we do or teach into question. What are the gospel substitutes of today? What have we evangelicals put in the place of the glorious work of God and Jesus Christ? That which we all are all too familiar, that which we have baptized and revered, that which has become part of our own sacred t- tradition. Maybe it is here that Antichrist is, is at work today. Well, one thing is certain, unless by divine enlightenment we can t- discern the work of Antichrist today, we have no assurance that we will discern his manifestation tomorrow. Fantastic article and a little bit provocative but that's the idea. The idea is that's why John warns us about antichrist coming and antichrist already here. It's a, it's yes, it's then. And it's now you don't lose sight of that so that you can recognize the present danger that we currently are in. Now, what are some of the antichrists or false gospels that we deal with today? Well, let me give you some ideas. For instance, Focusing on the work of the third person of the Trinity in place of the second person. That would be the Holy Spirit instead of Christ. Um, it's sanctification, taking the place of justification. Personal righteousness of the believer in the place of the vicarious righteousness of Christ. Faith in the place of the meritorious obedience of Christ. Um, our self crucifixion in the place of Christ's crucifixion, our new life in the place of his sinless life, our experience in the center in the place of his, our love for God in the place of his love for us, our surrender instead of Christ's, our virtuous life in the place of his, our attainment instead of his atonement. You, you get the idea? There's lots and lots of ways. And that the Antichrist works by giving us a substitute Christ and then as a result of it, a substitute and false gospel. That's the the goal of the big antichrist and all the little antichrists and the spirit of antichrist along the way. So anyway, I hope that was helpful. I know it might have been a little bit confusing, but would love to get your feedback. In fact, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sermon review on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. Rah! Listening to Byron Christian Radio. The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen... Despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the of cheapo airs already low prices. Write down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website. Very easy to use, very inexpensive. You save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. So again com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. See if we're getting the biblical gospel here and whether or not we're being pointed to Christ and what he's done for us, or if we're being pointed to a substitute or instead of Christ, a.k.a. Antichrist, using the Greek prefix, not the American or English. We continue. Here we go. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via celebration church jacksonville florida Stovall weems presiding the name of said sermon is entitled stuck in a rut so remember our theme today antichrist Not against Christ, but the instead of Christ. That's what the Greek word Antichristos means. Are we going to get Jesus in his saving work, his historical saving work for us? The virgin-born Son of God who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried and rose again on the third day for our sins and for our justification. Are we going to get that Jesus? Or are we going to get the instead of Jesus, a different Jesus who apparently has a different agenda altogether? You can always tell because what's the focus? Is the focus really Christ and his saving work? Or does that get, like, lip service? Like, isn't it great that, like, Jesus died for us, but now we got more important things to talk about. Let's go focus over on this Jesus over here. The uh, life coach Jesus or the Jesus who really wants to be helpful in making your life happy, Jesus That kind of Jesus. You see what I'm saying here? That's the instead of Jesus. The instead of Christ. All right, let me kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is Stovall Weems and his sermon entitled Stuck in a Rut.
2: Man, great to see everybody this weekend. Hope you're having a a, a great August. And of course we are in that back to school season. And we are kicking off a brand new series here at Celebration Church called Stuck in a Rut. How many of you know it's easy as you go through life? There's so many challenges and there's so many things that we have to go through. Life is always slinging mud on us. And it's so important that we don't let all that mud slinging slow us down. How many of you know what I'm talking about? So uh, I want to read you.
0: What if I don't know what you're talking about? Mud slinging to slow us down? Where am I going? Why am I going there so quickly that if mud gets slung on me, it's going to slow me
2: down from getting there? I don't know what you're talking about. Do a scripture to all of our locations and we'll welcome in everybody today, but it's out of Psalm chapter 40. Verse 2 and 3, it says, He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear. <clears throat> Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. And so that's our theme scripture for this Stuck in a Rut series. Right now, church, why don't you help me welcome in. Yeah, I've got to stop right there. Weird to me, it's, it's absolutely well bizarre
0: that you, would, if you're gonna pick a psalm as your theme verse for a particular sermon or a series, that you would take like verses two and three from a psalm. You, you do know that psalms kind of like they they're like entire units; they work together. They're you understand what I'm saying? Let me, in fact, let me read to you Psalm 40, which is a fantastic psalm. And you know what this psalm? does it points us to the to christ and his work it really does and it it, it admonishes us to trust him listen to this i waited patiently for the lord he inclined to me and he heard my cry he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock and make making my steps secure he put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our god Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In the great congregation, behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. And as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me for evils who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and I am needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh, my God. You know, one of the most amazing things about the Psalms is they teach us how to pray. You can almost think of each of the Psalms as a prayer. I mean, that's, you know, there's so much in here about how to pray to God. But these are beautiful things, these Psalms, and they beautifully point us to Christ and his salvation. Did you catch the theme of sin and deliverance, of trouble and suffering and being delivered out of that being delivered out of the pit of destruction which would be hell itself this psalm points us to jesus and his work for us on the cross his sinless life death and resurrection for our sins i mean this is such an amazing psalm and it's just tragic to me that well stoval weems is going to take two and three and somehow find a theme here about being stuck in a rut, what does that have to do with Psalm 40? It doesn't sound like it has anything to do with it at all.
2: All of our locations, the annexes, as well as those watching on the Internet right now. Can you guys believe it? Uh, It's about two more months, two more months in this building for those of you here at Midtown, and we'll be moving in. So
0: the first thing he does after he reads the two verses from Psalm 40 is that he immediately begins to talk about them. Their church, what they are doing, not pointing us to Christ,
2: and the new location there at Bay Meadows Road in nine a and so uh, really, really excited and i 'm really, really excited about this series. As well, I believe that this is one of those series that if you can engage here uh, for, you know, the four or five weeks that we have this series, I really believe uh, that this series will change your life and the truths in it. We're going to talk about some things, the most important things in the Christian faith, but unfortunately, these things that are so important are often the most misunderstood and the most undervalued and the most underutilized. Listen, God has pulled you up out of a horrible pit. When you receive Jesus, man, he, he saved you. He forgave you all of your sins and he gave you a new life and he has pulled you out of that. Okay. Now that is, that's what we call a gospel
0: nugget. I mean, there it was lip service to the gospel. It gets an honorable mention. It came in quickly and it's well, there, there it goes. Those gospel nuggets in these seeker-driven churches, they fly through the sermon very quickly if they make any appearance at all. Yeah, there it is. That's the gospel flyby. There it is. So now we've got that out of the way. We can talk about more important things.
2: At Mary Clay, and even though life is constantly slinging mud on us and we're constantly having to go through difficult things, listen, God does not want you stuck in a rut. He wants you to know that you can, he will always see you through. And he's equipped us with certain things that if we know the power of those things and how to really put them into practice, we won't be getting bogged down in in all the mud and the dirt. If we know the power
0: of those things and put them into practice, huh? That life dishes. You know, I just read all of Psalm 40, the whole thing. I didn't see anything about principles that we need to put into practice to keep us from getting stuck in a rut. Our way,
2: let me read you a few scriptures here, second chronicles chapter five verse eleven through fourteen and, and you don 't need to go there because i 'm going to kind of unpack a, a few scriptures during the message today, but just follow along here. This is a powerful, powerful uh, foreshadowing of what God has called. New covenant believers to experience at even a greater level. Second Chronicles chapter five. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Second Chronicles
0: chapter five um, is about the dedication of the temple, Solomon's temple. You said it was a foreshadow of what Christians experience in their lives, huh? Uh, Second Chronicles chapter 5, I'll start at verse 1. Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver and the gold and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast, that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark and they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting and the holy vessels that were in the tent and the Levitical priests brought them up and King Solomon and the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests "...brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they were there to this day." There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that the Moses had put there at Horeb, where the Lord had a, made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman, and uh, Jeduthun, their sons and the kinsmen uh, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres, Stood east of the altar, with a hundred and twenty priests were uh, trumpet were trumpeteers, and it was the duty of the trumpeteers and the singers to make themselves heard in the in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in the praise to the Lord, for He is good, His steadfast love endures forever. The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Huh. Um, so if I'm hearing this correctly, he's basically claiming that the dedication of Solomon's temple is a foreshadow of an
2: the experience that Christians are supposed to have? Hmm. I'm, hmm, I'm skeptical. Proverbs 11-14, this was after Solomon built this great temple. It says, then the priest left the holy place. All the priests who were present had purified themselves, whether or not they were on duty that day. Aren't you glad that we've all been purified by the blood of Jesus? We can be ready in season and out of season. It goes on to say the Levites, who were the musicians, Asaph, Heman, and Jaduathan. Come on, that's kind of a redneck name, isn't it? That kind of fits this series, right? Like, like, do a Come on out here now and all their sons and brothers were dressed in cut off shorts and all right. Fine linen and rose and stood at the east side of the altar playing symbols. Lyrs, harps, they were joined by 120 priests who were playing trumpets. The trumpeters and the singers performed together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord. accompanied by the trumpets and cymbals and all these other instruments. Okay, so they're, they're, they're in uh, uh, the, the, the temple here. They're in the, the holy place. And it says, they raise their voices and praise the Lord with these words. He is good. His faithful love endures forever. At that moment, everybody say at that moment. At that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. Then John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is looking... For those who will worship him in that way, for God is spirit, and those who worship him. Uh, and now we're jumping
0: to the Gospel of John, um, and Jesus is you know taking part of Jesus' dialogue with the Samaritan woman out of context. Okay, it, it, as if this tells us something about Second um, Chronicles five. Yeah, I don't see that as a cross reference, not a valid one. Must
2: worship him in spirit. And in truth, I want to talk to you about experiencing the presence of God on a regular basis. Experiencing the presence of God.
0: Uh huh. So, our subjective experience is the thing that's taken the place of the objective gospel.
2: Got it. And I've entitled this message, At That Moment. At That Moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, in these next 30 minutes or so, God, give us a hungry heart, Lord, that we can take your word, understand it, and put it into practice, Lord. I know that there are many people here, they're, they're, they're stuck in a rut spiritually, relationally, emotionally. Life has thrown a lot of mud on them. God, I thank you that you're going to use your word to bring them out of that. And into a great next season in their lives, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, "Amen," and "Amen." You know, I was reading. Uh, you know, I read these different church magazines and periodicals, and every now and then they have these surveys where where the, the, they'll go out and do these surveys in different communities and places like that across America. American One of the what does a
0: church magazine have to do with second chronicles 5 the dedication of solomon's temple or those who worship jesus must worship him in spirit and in truth where are we going at this point i mean we're like off topic like you couldn't believe as if i mean so far this isn't even a lucid bible teaching none of these verses they
2: they don't go together the surveys recently they did a survey of unchurched people people who had said they don't go to church And so they asked the people in the first round of the survey, they asked the people, okay, why don't you go to church? Okay, the answer is simple.
0: Are you ready? Do you want to know why unbelievers don't go to church? Are you ready? Because they are born dead in trespasses and sins. That's the reason they don't go to church. They don't love God, and they cannot love God unless they are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Let me give you two passages that will kind of help clear this up. The reason why non-Christians don't go to church is because they're dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll start at verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Okay, Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, writes to them, and you were, before you were Christians, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked like the rest of mankind. Let me continue reading verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. So, you know, if you're going to do theology by survey, you're going to come up with problems. Here's the reason why Gallup polls or Barna polls, none of those polls are inspired by God. But the book of Ephesians, well, that is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. So what's the reason why pagans don't go to church? Are you ready? It's because they're dead in trespasses and sins. Let me give you another passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there's the thing. You want to know why your your, your pagan neighbors aren't at church? It's because they're dead in trespasses and sins. They, they're hostile to God. They don't, by nature, they don't love God, and they can't love God. They're born dead in trespasses and sins, children of the devil. You get what I'm saying here? That's the gist of what's going on. So here we got Stovall Weems, you know, now referencing out of, like, left field, some relevant magazine on church growth or whatever. And they did a survey and asked pagans why they don't come to church. Well, so you know what he's going to basically do? He's now going to blame the church. For the reason why pagans don't want to come to church, which is ridiculous because the answer is simple. Pagans don't come to church because they're, they hate God. They're hostile to him, and they're dead in trespasses and sins, and they're children of the devil. That's that simple.
2: Of unchurched people, people who had said they don't go to church. And so they asked the people in the first round of the survey, they asked the people, Okay, why don't you go to church? And the three most common answers were church is boring, church is irrelevant, and I feel like the people are judgmental. Why don't you go to church? And I can say that before, you know, before following Jesus, before becoming a Christian, probably if someone would have just kind of caught me off guard and I was honest and I really thought about it, I would probably say the same things. I mean, definitely the church that I had been going to when I was not a Christian, I mean, that thing was so boring. I'm just being honest with you. I don't, I mean, I couldn't imagine how God could be that boring. I said, church, you know, de- irrelevant. It just doesn't kind of relate to where I live. The things kind of, they're like inapplicable. A lot of- yeah, so boring and inapplicable to the things
0: that, so basically, hey, listen, I'd be interested in going to your church if you gave me a God that was like relevant to me in my pagan dead and trespasses and sins
2: and hostility to God state. You see? A lot of things. And then, um judgmental. My church wasn't really that, that judgmental, but, but there's a lot of people who experience that. I would probably throw in another thing that, you know, the preacher, he wouldn't get finished a lot of times by noon. And so that would mess up my football watching during. Fo-
0: oh no. I mean, that's terrible. I mean, what a selfish pastor that is. I mean, can you imagine a pastor who thinks that God's
2: word is more important than football? What is he thinking? Football season and- can't deal with that. God wants me to watch football.
0: Oh yeah, I'm sure he does. God doesn't really want you to hear his word. No, God wants you to watch football. You only need a little bit of God's word, but you need a lot of football. Glad you got your priorities straight.
2: But it was real interesting. So that was kind of out there in the church world, ministry world for a while. But then finally somebody said, well, that's, that, that, that's a Interesting survey, but that doesn't really answer the question of what people are searching for. In other words, do a survey not on why don't people come to church, but do a survey to unchurched people. What would make you come to church? In other words, you tell me why you're not coming. Do a survey. Okay, what if you could come to church and, and what would make you want to come to church? By far, it wasn't a top three. By far, it was overwhelmingly this one answer. If I knew I could experience God.
0: Oh, ah, okay. So pagans want an experience of God. No problemo. Uh, you know, Stovall Weems is one of the premier seeker-driven leaders out there. And, uh, well, you want an experience? Well, we've got experiences from you. Experiences are us. Yeah. Does it do you see that this whole thing is backwards? You're asking people who are dead in trespasses and sins and hostile to God why you don't come to church, and then asking them what would make them want to come to church. Well, I'd be interested. If I can have an experience, no problemo.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah. Um you wanna know why people come to church, or at least why they've come to church for the past two thousand years? It's real simple. Here here goes. Are you ready? For the past 2,000 years, Christians have been equipped to share the gospel with their pagan friends and neighbors by going to church Sunday after Sunday and being immersed in God's word, understanding the gospel and hearing Christ proclaimed. And this good news is such good news. You know what they do? They go and they tell their neighbors, listen, let me tell you about Jesus. You see, you're going to die someday. It's because you're a sinner, just like me. But Jesus is God in human flesh, and he died on the cross for your sins. And not only that, he was bodily raised from the dead on the third day after he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, yeah, it's true. All of his followers saw him, you know, after you know, for like forty days, you know, after he was crucified and resurrected, they spent time with him, ate fish with him. They're they're witnesses of his resurrection, and he's offering to everybody the free gift of salvation because he bore our sins on the cross. Can you believe it? So they share that gospel with their neighbors, and you know what happens? They're pagan neighbors, who have no desire to go to church, God. Grants them, gives them repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They go from being dead to being alive in Christ. They are a new creation, and you know what? They all of a sudden they got a new appetite. They have awoken from the dead spiritually, and they're hungry. And you. I, I've got to hear more about that Jesus. And you know what they do? They go to church and they're fed God's word and they're cared for by Christ's shepherds, his pastors, and those sheep grow up and mature. And then they share the faith with their friends and neighbors and, and their friends and neighbors become Christians. And then they got to go to church too. See, that's how this works. The whole seeker driven model works off the presupposition that the reason why people don't go to church is because the church is doing something wrong. It's boring. Yeah, it's not relevant to people. If we would just make the church relevant to people, well, the pagans would want to come.
2: See the problem? Once they unpacked them, well, I just did it. Once they kind of got down to the core of what they were meaning, overwhelmingly, the number one thing was I would come to church, I would try church again if I knew that I could experience God. If God's risky life is an experience, You don't just
0: learn life, you do learn life, but much of what you... Now, this makes it clear that the whole emphasis on experience is a form of idolatry in the Seeker-Driven Movement. It's driven by the desires of pagans, not by what God's Word tells us we should be seeking, what we should be seeking for and expecting in a church service. The the source of this is expectations of people who are dead in trespasses and sins
2: you learn in life as an experience. And so people were like, if I could, if I could experience God in church, that's what would make me come to church. And interestingly enough, one of the purposes of corporate worship is experiencing God. One of the very purposes of how we worship as a New covenant. What does that mean to
0: experience God? What does it mean? I I don't even know what the the phrase itself is supposed to mean. I experienced God. What does that mean? That I had a liver shiver? That I had a burning in my bosom? That I raised my hands in worship and I cried? What does it mean to quote experience God?
2: believer, one of the very purposes for us being able to receive Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit, which by the way, I'm going to talk more about that in our 201 class immediately following this service or uh, whatever service you're attending. So I hope you can make that 201 class. Come on, 201, then 301, then you, you graduate. You get your towel. We don't give you a trophy. We give you a towel because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. This ain't no sissy church. Get your sweat on. What was I talking about? Experiencing God. Experiencing God in worship. and So the sad thing is, Here's people that are lost, that are far from God saying, hey, I'd come to church if I could experience God, experience His presence, and then what we're going to look at today, and it's a great foreshadowing of that in this scripture that we just read here in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. But that is one of the main purposes of our worship to God, that we don't just sing about God, but that... Our 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 engagement with God it's not it's not just singing we are encountering God we are engaging God God has designed worship where we can experience Him experience His presence. That's why the Bible says, "Oh, taste and see." Yeah.
0: Again, what does it mean? I mean, he he sounds like he's confident about this. This is. We're here to experience God. Again, I've been to a lot of church services, different types throughout my lifetime. What do you mean by the phrase, we're here to experience God? It sounds to me like you're more interested in the experience than you are in the crucified and risen Savior. I mean, again, what do you mean by experience God?
2: That the Lord is good. And unfortunately, in so many Christian circles and churches, worship's not viewed like that.
0: Okay, now I'm going to point this out. What did he just do? You see, there's all these well-meaning pagans out there. They would come to church, but you know what? It's those selfish, backwards, traditionalist Christians who have their heads stuck in the third century, who are just boring the world to tears, that those people are basically keeping good folk out of church because of their refusal to, have, uh, to allow people to experience God in worship. You see what's happened here? Who's to blame for all those pagans going to hell? Well, the churches, selfish churches who refuse to allow them to have their God experiences.
2: This is diabolical. It's viewed as we're singing song. We're making some good declarations. We have good Christian lyrics. But the environment and the, the singing is not... See, it's a, that, is, that is a means to an end. And that end is that you can encounter God and have a moment with Him at that moment. Where... So, worship
0: is a means to an end and the end is the experience.
2: Are you actually experience the presence of the everlasting God. Come on, how many of you are regularly ready to experience the presence of the everlasting God? It's what people are looking for. It's what they're searching for. Let me just unpack this story that I just read to you. Out of
0: Okay, I'm going to contradict him with God's word. See, see, the pagans out there, they're seeking for an experience. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. You see, um, no one seeks for God. Those who are born dead in trespasses and sins and are hostile to God by nature they don't seek for God. They're not seeking for God experiences. They don't want the real God. They don't want God. They just want what God will give them. Oh, I'd be interested in going to church if I can have an experience. Well, well no problem. We'll give that to you. The church, no, the, no, Bible doesn't promise people who come to church an experience. It doesn't promise them that at all. These texts, Second Chronicles 5, doesn't teach that. Those who worship him in spirit and truth, it doesn't teach that either. This is idolatry. This is idolatry. And the seeker-driven church there in Jacksonville, Florida, Stovall Weems' church, is all too willing and ready to throw, well, the historic church under the bus and accuse them of being the culprits responsible for keeping these well-meaning people out who would, uh, they just want to come to church, but see, those selfish churches, they won't allow them to have an experience. And yet the scripture says, no one seeks for God. you know who the seeker is in scripture? It's Jesus. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. You see, pagans who are dead in trespasses and sins, they're not seeking God. But Jesus Christ, the virgin born son of God, he's seeking them because they're lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. See the difference?
2: chronicles chapter five verse 11 here i mean i want you to imagine this scene here okay so they've just constructed this huge temple okay they bring in the ark that represents the presence of god the bible says this that that all of the priests are there and as we just read it talks about that these priests some of these priests come on they look they had a, they had a worship team back in solomon's day some of these priests. What does it say here? What were these instruments? They had they had trumpets. They had uh, they had lyres. I don't know what that is. Look, cymbals. I, I'm going to stay away from the drums, but they had harps. That's just kind of a Old Testament electric guitar. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure they had like a a bass harp and a. You know what I'm saying. So now
0: he's exegeting, actually, isogeating the passage, and wouldn't you know what? There, at the dedication of Solomon's temple, was a praise band. Hmm.
2: And these people were named, you know, Jehuda Dud and Asaph and all these, but but I mean, just imagine. I'm just talking about our worship team up here and, and at your location. Just think of those people that are up there with instruments singing to the Lord. I mean, we have we have Matt and Dougie and Marie and so many more. And and what they're they're up here with instruments. But they're not just singing about God. So you can come in. And kind of sing about God with them. You know, kind of feel like you're doing your, Christ, your, your part as a Christian.
0: Okay, here's a problem. He's, he's, he's conflating some concepts here. Um, Solomon's temple was not a place where, um, you know, they had, well, the, the primary function of the temple was the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system whereby you would bring your sacrifices for the remission of sins, to uh, cleanse you when you've been unclean, uh, you know, when you've broken a law or a commandment. Uh, the big high holy day there, Yom Kippur, uh, big deal there. Uh, the evening sacrifices took place there. Um, you see, where people heard the word of God on a regular basis, the primary place that they would go to be instructed in God's word, was the synagogue so here we've got a problem and on top of it nowhere in scripture does it talk about the weekly gathering of the people of Israel at the temple for the praise and worship time and then the cloud shows up you see this is a this is a once in a dead literally in a in biblical history event you know and not only that it, well actually i could i would say it's probably a twice because something very similar to this happened when the tabernacle was dedicated um, for the first time, when you know with Moses and the children of Israel out in the wilderness, when the de- uh, when the tabernacle was finished and constructed, something very similar to this occurred. And what was and what's the temple? Well, it's the uh, it's the permanent tabernacle, if you would. And so you see a, you see a similar thing happen here at the dedication of Solomon's Temple as you did with the dedication of the of the tabernacle. But this, what he's doing here is just evil because he's equating this event with the weekly gathering of the saints to hear God's word and to receive the Lord's Supper and to sing praises to the Lord in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with the dedication of the temple. The, the, the parallel doesn't exist at all.
2: Worshipper, that is not what worship is all about. And we see that in this story here. Listen, the Bible says, first of all, everybody in here to experience this moment, this power of God, this presence, everybody in there had to be a priest. Aren't you glad because of the blood of Jesus? The Bible says that we are a royal priesthood, we are a holy nation. Listen, you are a priest. Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren. You are a son and daughter of God. You are also a brother of Jesus Christ. You're not just a servant. Jesus says, I have now called you friends. You know why that's so important? I'm not trying to come against any other religion out there or anything like that. You know, I love the our Catholic brothers and sisters and all that. Look, I grew up in South Louisiana. I mean, you were kind of Catholic whether you liked it or not. It just didn't even matter but why this is so important is because back in the old testament see only the priest could come into that inner court only the priest could come in there and experience the presence of god like that and that's why the bible says god says in the new covenant i'm gonna you are
0: aware that it was
2: a terrifying thing for them to go
0: behind that curtain right um oftentimes the experience of the divine they had would kill them. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the practices of the person responsible for sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat involved a rope around one of their ankles and little dingly bells on their, on the bottom of their robes so that if God struck them down dead, they would hear that it had happened by the fact that there's no more bells going on, and they could pull the rope and yank his body out of there. Is that
2: the kind of experience you're talking about? Make. None will have to go to his brother saying, Help me know the Lord. See, what would happen in the Old Testament is, now these priests would come out, and they would just describe their experience to all the people.
0: What are you talking about? That is not what happened in there at all.
2: And the people say, wow, y'all are so holy. Wow, y'all are so great. Wow, I wish I could experience God like that. That's why the. Really, what passage
0: from the Old Testament could you point to that backs that statement up? I bet you can't find one because there isn't one that exists.
2: Bible is specific to say, listen, Jesus in the new covenant, listen, no longer will you have to go to your brother saying, help me know the Lord. God says, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. I'm going to give them a new heart. So has
0: that happened yet? I mean, do your neighbors, they just know the Lord. We don't have to teach them about him. Or is that talking about an eschatological event coming in the future? an eschatological reality coming at the eschaton.
2: I'm going to give it a new spirit. I'm going to put my word in their minds. Everyone is going to be like a priest to me. He he or she will be able to come directly to me. Because of the blood of Jesus, the veil was torn. We can come with boldness and confidence, even though we have sin and issues and you've been acting crazy all week. And we can say, Lord, I come into your presence, Lord, because of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has made me righteous. That's why I love that when Jesus taught on worship, do you realize this? That lesson we just read in John chapter four, when Jesus taught on worship, you realize he didn't teach on worship to his disciples first. You know who he taught on worship to? An adulterous Samaritan woman, which back in that day, that basically put you at the bottom of the totem pole on the social ladder. Samaritans were looked at as half-breeds. It's a major racial thing going on with Jews and Samaritans. Then she was a woman. That gave you a knock, a few knocks down. Then on top of that, what did Jesus say? She'd have five husbands, five. And the one she's living with right now ain't even her husband. Well, this is a broken woman. And it's not a coincidence that that is the person that Jesus teaches about worship. And you know what he says? You know, they're talking, and of course, he reads her, reads her mail. And then she starts talking about, you know, when Messiah comes, you know, he's going to tell us where to worship. And that's where Jesus makes this powerful statement. He kind of basically puts it out there like this He says, look, If you would ask of me, I will give you living water. Okay, now
0: points to the sound. He's not actually reading the text. He's in control of the narrative because he's focusing in on the word worship without paying any attention to how the word is being used in this text. Okay, by the way, there's different concepts behind the word worship. Okay, let's take a look at this. John chapter 4, verse 20, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. How is the word worship being used in this context? Okay, well... It's about worshiping God. It's not about an experience. It's about worshiping God, praising him, thanking him, believing him, trusting him. Now notice, okay, there was an issue. The Jews say you have to worship in Jerusalem. By the way, the Mosaic law made it very clear that the men of Israel were to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem three times a year three times a year they were to do this okay this was a big deal this is the place where god had put his name on that temple the men of israel had to appear before him so they were right and that jesus points that out that if they had to appear before the lord three times a year and the worship involved in the in the temple the sacrifice of animals that's what it involved but see, the true worship of God now is no longer with sacrifices of animals. Instead, all of those are the types and shadows that point us to the reality. The reality is Christ, the Lamb of God, literally slain for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's a lot more going on here, but it's not talking about oh having some you know mystical experience. That's not what Jesus is talking about here
2: where you'll never thirst again. And then he ties that into the true worshipers. When they begin to worship, and these are the kind of worshipers that the Father is looking for. In other words, these are the people who are going to really worship and, and experience worship to the intent that the Father has for them. Those worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, what God was saying is this, the living water, God has ordained this side of heaven. When you engage God in worship, that is the practice that the Father has ordained for his living water to flow into your life.
0: Oh, good night. What a complete miserable mangling of this text.
2: If you will come in and understand this, I'm here to worship in spirit and truth. I'm going to unpack that in just a second. But what that basically means is understanding that, look, God is not flesh. God is spirit. So I have to come in in the truth that, Jesus, I'm coming in here to lift up and worship Jesus, and I understand if I have the right attitudes. I'm going to show you three things. If I come in and I do it that way, worship in spirit and truth, every single time the living water of Christ is going to flow through me. Okay,
0: okay he's twisting this text. By the way, it says spirit and truth. Since he's not telling you the truth, this you know, there's not real worship of God going on there at this church, especially not now. Let's back this up here. Notice what he did. He took the conversation that Jesus had with the woman regarding water, and now he basically is making this passage say something that it doesn't say. Okay? So we need to back it up. Okay? The woman, okay, so um, let's go to chapter 4, verse 7. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'm going to point something out here. Did you catch the verb? Give, give. The water I will give. The water I will give. Give who's giving it. Jesus. If you have to somehow earn this water by your attitudes, it's not a gift. It's a wage. Okay. Something to point out here. So the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have, uh, and have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and tell him to come here. The woman answered, well, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying you have no husband for you've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. This is where the conversation turns. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Okay, we've already been to this passage. So what he's done here, what Soval Williams is doing here, because he didn't actually read the verses before, he just made reference to them in a narrative that he controlled. He's now making this passage say something it doesn't say at all. Let me back this up so you can hear how he's taking the water portion of this passage And turning it into something that you have to get if you do something. Here we go.
2: Basically means is understanding that, look, God is not flesh. God is spirit. So I have to come in in the truth. That, Jesus, I'm coming in here to lift up and worship Jesus, and I understand if I have the right attitudes. I'm going to show you three things. If I come in and I do it that way, worship in spirit and truth, every single time the living water of Christ is going to flow through me. Oh, come on, give God a hand for that. Catch the construct? If,
0: then, if, if I do this, then, then this will happen. Jesus said, the water I will Give the water I will give. Stovall Weems doesn't see it as something that Christ gives. It's an if-then. If I do this, then Christ will do that. That's a transaction, not a gift.
2: But here's what I love about this scripture here. So it talks about that, look, so the worship team's up there. They crank up the music. And then everybody sings in unison. I love this. They begin to speak the truth. He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Look at this. At that moment. Everybody say at that moment. At that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priest could not continue their service because of the cloud. Now watch. Some translations I believe the King James translation translates it more specifically or more correctly. The Bible says that when the presence of God fell this cloud, the priest could no longer stand. For the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. Some translations say that the, all flesh could no longer stand. Now watch this. In the new covenant, what's the temple of the Lord or who's the temple of the Lord? We are. The Bible clearly says that we are the temple of the Lord. Your body is the temple of the Lord. You have something far better than the Ark of the Covenant. You had the one who made the covenant and created this whole thing in the first place. You have Jesus Christ living on the inside of you. You have the Holies of Holies on the inside of you. You are the temple. Watch, here's what the Bible says. In your temple, when you engage God... In worship at that moment. Listen, there's a lot of things in the Christian life that are a process. Growth is a process. Sometimes deliverance and freedom and and all these kind of things are a process. But there's one practice this side of heaven where it's an at that moment experience. That's one of the purposes that worship serves. At that moment, when you engage God, his presence comes into your temple and it's filled. At that moment, your flesh cannot stand. Now, let me explain what I mean in that. Your flesh, the, thing, the, the pain that you're experiencing... Some of the the sin, the temptation, the the, 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 the mud that comes on your life. Here's what God's saying. When you come to me in worship, at that moment, when, when my presence fills your temple, the pain and the cares and the worries and the struggles and the temptations and the heartaches and all of those things won't be able to stand. It will just be for that moment. But at that moment, God says, I want to give you a reprieve.
0: Where is he getting any of this? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. By the way, an inheritance is given as a gift upon the death of somebody. Who would that death be? Whose death would that be? Christ's. who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm seeing a problem here. He's spinning his own theology much the same way that um, Dr. Fluitt did um, in the first hour. And we're getting all these assertions about what God's going to do without any passages that actually say the things that he's saying that they say.
2: You've been out there in the battlefield. You've been out there in the mud. You've been getting dirt slinged on you all week. And when you come in here, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. And for that moment, just that 20, 30 minutes, at that moment, I want you to get a reprieve from the pain, from the temptation, from the condemnation. I want to point
0: something else out. You want to know that you got to get this. The Old Testament temple, the temple of Solomon. That's the shadow. The reality is Christ. What takes place at the temple? The sacrifice of sins. John chapter 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Remember when Jesus cleared out the temple in in the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 2? Okay, so he clears out the money changers. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And so the Jews asked him, "What, what sign can you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three three days I will raise it up. So the Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Yeah, in fact, these are the words that they threw in Jesus's when he was being crucified. Matthew chapter 27, verse 40. Jesus is on the cross. He said, You who would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God and come down from the cross. You see, the Solomon's temple points us to the temple of Christ's body, which was broken, beaten, bloodied, and crucified for our sins. Your sins were on Christ. On that dark Friday. He's the real temple of God. You see the difference? Okay. So what Stovall Weems does is he's not pointing us to Christ. He's pointing us to, well, ourselves. He's not preaching Christ. He's preaching the Christian. The Christian is usurping Christ in this sermon.
2: Whatever that thing is, no flesh will be able to stand. You know, I've never, ever seen a person engaged in worship and experiencing the presence of God and at the same time taking drugs. I've never seen a person... Well, then by that
0: stretch of logic, I've never seen somebody twist God's word and teach heresy and be filled with the Spirit of God, so therefore you must not be filled with the Spirit of God. That's That logically follows from your theology. I'm with you.
2: Person engaged in the presence of God and feeling the, the, the presence of God on the inside of them and at the same time I call somebody on their cell phone their mat out and start cussing them out oh Jesus you blankety blank 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 oh God no flesh can stand I've never seen anybody come in and experiencing the presence of God at the same time, pull out their, their phone and, and, and look at inappropriate images on the Internet.
0: This is all law, no gospel.
2: Why? Because if you think about it, at that moment, for those of you who've, who've engaged in worship, at that
0: moment... Those are the key words. If you think about it. Notice he's making all these assertions without any biblical text backing up what he's saying in context. He's just taken this, no flesh will stand from Second Chronicles chapter 5, um, and somehow turned this into, well, if you're frontal caboodlating, then you know, you're not going to experience the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. That's not what that text is saying. You're lying moment
2: it is a total reprieve from the flesh and the world and it is the only time that you get that in concentrated form this side of heaven now here's a deal here's a great thing guess what when we all on the other side of heaven it's gonna be be no more tears be no more pain be no more temptation What you experience the presence of God during worship in this world, it is just like, it's a, it's like a drop in a bucket or a drop in the ocean of a billion oceans. You can't even compare. However, just a drop of God's living water. Come on. That is the truly the only thing this side of heaven that can satisfy the soul. Can you give him a hand for that? Oh, come on. Give God a hand. So here's God's plan. Like here is what God would want out of new covenant followers of Jesus. God wants you to become a worshiper and understand the power of worship so that you worship so much. Yes, at church corporately, there's a very, that's why it's so important to be faithful to weekend services. There's a special presence and power in corporate worship but also in your car and, and just, you, you, you just begin to come a worshiper, worship God all the time so that your flesh will live in a continued weakened state. And churches, I'm not being negative, maybe a little bit, but what I'm just telling the truth. Listen, churches that don't understand that worship is not just singing Positive things about God, but worship is designed for us to encounter the presence of God so that we can get a reprieve from the world, reprieve from the flesh, reprieve from all the pressures and weaken our corn, our carnality, for lack of better word. That's why churches that don't understand the power of worship. Listen, spiritually speaking, I'm just telling you from the Bible, that's going to be a weak church. Spiritually, because worship is designed for an at-that-moment experience. God wants you to become a worshiper. Look, let me give you one more thing and then I'm going to give you just a few things to close out here. In Second Chronicles, I love this. If you're doing the daily Bible reading, we just read this in chapter 20. Look at this, okay? So, Here comes Jehoshaphat. He was a good king, one of only four good kings in Judah. I love this. So he's going out to war. All right. Verse 21, I'm going to begin reading verse 21. Just read a few scriptures here. It says, after consulting the people, the king appointed singers. Everybody say singers. singers. Singers to walk ahead of his army, singing to the Lord, praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. Man, that's just a great song right there. That sums it up right there. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. It says, look, here we go, verse 22. At that very what? Moment. He's going into this battle. They're totally outnumbered here. Listen, in the natural, you are totally outnumbered this week. You've got everything against you in your relationship with God. You know, you got your own flesh
0: notice he's allegorizing the text now, narcissistically.
2: That's bad enough. Then you've got all the temptation of the world and all that bombardment from the media and everything else. Then you got the devil on top of that. And here's Jehoshaphat going into this Battle! Everything's against him. But they praise the Lord. It says at the very moment they begin to sing praise. Look at this. The Lord calls the armies of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. Then it goes on in verse 23 and 24. It just basically God turned all their enemies against them. No one. They didn't even have to do any fighting. What is Exodus 14, 14? The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Look what it goes on to say. Verse 25, King Jehoshaphat and his men went out to gather the plunder. They found vast amounts of equipment, clothing, other valuables. More than they could carry, so much plunder that it took them three days just to collect it all. How many of you know that's some serious blessing right there? It goes on to say this, on the fourth day they gathered in the Valley of Blessing. Which got its name that day because the people praised and thanked the Lord there. It is called the Valley of Blessing to this day. Do you realize this? See, here's how God has designed worship. God's saying this, if you will come in and worship me, I will fight your battles for you. The Bible says that at that moment, they begin to praise God at that moment. Let's say the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. At that moment, God came down and the flesh or the enemy could no longer stand in his presence. And what did Jehoshaphat and his guys do? They just soaked up all the blessings. See, every week at Midtown or Orange Park or St. John's or Hardy or St. Augustine or Northern Ireland or wherever you're attending, Celebration Church, can I tell you, every week there is a valley of blessing for you.
0: Really? Uh Uh-huh.
2: Every week there is a place where praise is going up to God. And if you will come to that valley of blessing where the praise is going on, God will inhabit your praises. He'll fight your battles for you, and you'll be able to pick up all of those, what? If,
0: if, 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 this
2: is all law not any gospel at all. Spiritual blessings. What happens when you worship? We don't get equipment and clothes and goods. I mean, some of y'all wish we could, but what does God, he has spiritual blessings for us. We get peace and joy. We get things that money cannot buy. That's why faithfulness to weekend services is so, so important. This is your valley of blessing. Don't miss out on it. Come on, give God a hand. Oh man, let me give you three things, three things. God wants you to move from attending, many of you attending a worship service to participating in a worship service. That's the main thing. We don't attend worship services. What have you done with Christ? Why aren't you telling us all about the things that he's done for us? That's why we like to use the language we talked about in our membership in 101. We like to talk about faithful to weekend services. We're coming here to participate, we're coming here to have that moment with God. You know, the Hebrew word for worship actually means to kiss. Some of you daddies out there, don't you love it when your kid just comes and gives you a hug and a kiss? This is that moment. This is that moment. It's the moment where God takes you up. He gives you a reprieve from all the mud and crud and everything else. Some of you are trying to go through life. Listen, this whole world, it's a swamp. You know what I'm saying? Listen, I know we know about swamps here in Florida. I'm from Louisiana. I'm from the bayous and the quicksand and all that kind of stuff. Listen, the whole world's like that. And many of you are trying, trying to navigate life. And you're like, what are those things? You're driving a Nissan Leaf. What are those new cars? Those things that are like a golf cart, but just a little faster. You're not taking no Nissan Leaf through the swamp. You're trying to drive a Subaru buttercup. You're trying to... There's a vehicle that the mud of this world cannot slow down, and that vehicle is worship. Worship will take you places that only God can take you. Come on, can you give me my... I want to point something else out here. Truly, worship is a good
0: thing, but what he's doing with this is misapplying worship and making it the center rather than Christ. As a result of it, he's displacing Christ with something else and teaching a different gospel rather than the biblical gospel.
2: My hand. Three things. Real quick. Real quick right here. Three quick steps here, okay? The first step in participating in worship is you've got to engage. Everybody say engage. Engage. Uh, Jesus said this, or they said, they talked about this in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. He said, Love The Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind.
0: Now that's the summary of the law. And that's the thing that condemns you because you don't do this. And that's the very reason why you need
2: a Savior. Everybody see that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. So now it's going to kind of qualify heart. Okay, all your heart, that's everything. But then Jesus kind of unpacks it. That involves three things here. That involves your strength. It involves your mind, and it involves your soul. That is the way that we enter in to worship. Okay, the first thing is your strength or your body. So you show up at worship, okay? You've come to the worship service. Here comes the praise song.
0: He doesn't even know what he's doing here. He's preaching the law, and you can't keep this. This is why you need a Savior.
2: Here comes the Levites. Man, the presence of God is going to come down. But what happened? You're sleepy? Are you crazy? Are you been doing whatever you've been doing and you got, you're distracting? And so you know what we do? That, that, this is why we design church the way. You think that we have it dark in here just because we like it dark? No, why? Because when it's dark, people are less self-conscious. We don't want you focusing on your neighbor yourself or anybody else. We want that just kind of darkened out. We want you focusing on God. So we come in here and they're clapping and they're singing and they're doing things like that. And you might say, well, I don't feel like clapping. So what? That's not, listen, listen, I'm going to give you, I'm a, I mean, I don't have times. I mean, I could read you all these Psalms, you know, come into the Lord, Lord come into this house of joyful singing, clap your hands unto the Lord, lift your hands in the sanctuary, come out, break out and praise. sing for joy. You know, all, I mean, I, I just don't have time to go over all these scriptures and Psalms. But here's the principle. Every supernatural move of God starts with a very natural move of man.
0: He doesn't have time to read to you God's word. He'll just sum it up without actually giving you a single text that says it.
2: What if you applied that to every other? Well, I, you know, I don't I don't feel like opening my Bible. I don't feel like going to work. I don't. Do you see? You got to step out in the natural. So you show up at church. Okay. Clap your hands. It's a commandment. All you peoples, clap your hands unto the Lord. So it's like in Psalms, like 20 times. Go look it up. So, you know, what? I don't feel like clapping. But guess what? Start moving your lips. We have those words up there on the massive screen. You got to come in. Some of you that come into worship, they look like this all time. Move. Start to move. Clap your hands. Move your lips. Start to engage God. That's what it means. Love the Lord you God with all your hearts on Him. What? Strength. Your strength. There's a physical component. And the physical is first because we live in a natural world. And you'll start, man, if you start clapping your hands in faith, you start singing those words. All of a sudden, things begin to change. I'm not saying, so look, we're all going to do this real quick. Can I have five more minutes? Five more minutes. Real quick. Let's all worship God by clapping. Come on, clap your hands. Yay!
0: So do you think it really means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength by clapping? Is that how you do it?
2: Let's all, let's all do this. Let's all worship God by lifting our hands. The Bible says lift your hands in the sanctuary and bless them. Look, look, you're not a weirdo. Everything's okay. We, we, we lift our hands. It's, it's a sign of surrender. The Bible talks about, I mean, it even talks about dancing. Now, listen, listen. We don't have the room for some of y'all to do a full throwdown in church. You know what I'm saying, man? But every once in a while, some of y'all, I mean, just, you got to get a little, get a move on. It was so funny. One time this guy, he he was new at church, and uh, he had just... Just became a Christian. He was right out of the clubs, which seems to be a real strength of ours. And uh, (laughs) he was right out of the clubs, man. It it was one of those, I think it was during Awakening, one of those Sunday nights, and I looked down, he was at the altar. Let me tell you something. He was doing a full blown, that kind of X, X club kind of vibe, man. He was like, do, do, do. And there's that thing, it's like, you know, throwing his, it's like, Throw your pole, reel him in. See that girl, throw your pole, reel Oh, I like you, throw the pole, reel them in. Throw the fish, re- It's like, look, bro, you can't be fishing for no women up in here. But he didn't even he didn't know any better. He was just expressing himself to the world. You know what? I would take that any day. Here's what I'm trying to say. I will take any day someone that has passion and zeal for the Lord and just said, and you know, learn how to do it the church way.
0: <laughs> then someone that's. And he's not teaching what the Bible teaches, he's just spewing out things out of his own mind.
2: He's just going to sit there and think that they're too big for God. And I'm not saying, listen, some of us are more demonstrative. Some of us are more reserved. I'm not saying you be somebody or not. If you're a reserved person I do I want you to show up, you know, next Sunday and be like, let's go, let's go, let's go. But I'm just saying, you've you got to, you don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, my pastor in Louisiana, he would, I mean, he would just kind of like, man, just kind of lift his hand. Kind of clap a little, but that was his personality, but he was he was engaging. He was sincere, doing all those. Engaging the Lord. Be yourself. That's why at Celebration Church, too, I'll say this. Now, here's the other extreme. Don't bring no flag in here. Don't come running a lap. Listen, if you want to run a lap, you go out in the parking lot. You run all the laps you want for God. You're not doing it up in here. But what if they? that
0: means in their heart to love God with all their heart? I mean, serious, why are you... Putting the kibosh. I mean, what if the culture decides that running laps and, and swinging flags is really relevant? I mean, why would you want to put the kibosh on somebody's experience?
2: You know what I'm saying? Why? Because we don't want to worship where we take the focus off God and put it on ourselves. You see what I'm saying? We don't have the room to run laps up here. You want- well, you're doing, you're
0: worshiping God in order to get something from him. So the emphasis is actually
2: right on yourself. You will run laps. Go to the track. Just get filled with the spirit and just head on out here. Just jog. You get a lap. I don't want you or a, a, a flag. Dude, we had someone pull a flag out here one time. Our ushers tackled them like that. And I have to give. I don't know if that woman's still in the church, but I have to give her credit because she... I saw it. I was over there and she was over here and it was packed. And all of a sudden I saw this flag come up and listen, she was good. She had like a rotate. I mean, she had that thing going on. Of course, it's blinding everybody behind her. And all of a sudden she hadn't done it for like, like 10 seconds, man. And then I saw the ushers over there getting her, but she didn't give up. She like, I saw it. Like they took her down and she raised it. She raised it back up. And then they got her down there and she, she wasn't going down without a fight. So there's all these different extremes. And we have a culture of worship here and that culture is engaging God. Not being a distraction, but at the same time. Under, do you understand that God, he, you're made in His image and He gave you emotions? What if we treat, do you understand whatever you're passionate about, you're going to be emotional about? People that say, oh, that's that's just emotional. just a bunch of emotional. Of course we're emotional. We're humans. You're emotional every day. Some of you, you're so, you need to be, you're too emotional. We're a mo- what if we did that? What if you went to the, the Gators game or the Georgia game or whatever, and you're, or, or, let me, if you're a true fan, let me ask you this. If you're a true fan, if you're passionate about your team, the Jags, the Bulldogs, the Seminoles, the Gators, the whoever, the number one LSU Tigers that even though I know they put them at number three, they were number one, that was not fair. I heard someone say, roll tide. The Holy Spirit just left. I'm waiting for him to come back. And you be quiet too. I got some tide fans on the front row. What if you did that to your team? What if when the Gators made a touchdown, you Gator fans, you were just like, what if you were just like, come on, son, let's stand. And there was like a little piece of paper. Oh, Florida Gators. Now, there's nothing wrong with passion.
0: I think it's absolutely called for in the church. But that's not exactly what he's pitching here. He's just pitching his own ideas and his own notions about what should be happening in church based upon his misreading and mishandling of a biblical text or four.
2: That was a great touchdown. <laughs> I am a fan. Yet we do that in church about what's eternal about true self. That's why all the pictures that we have of worship in the Old Testament and and then when we get into the, man, it's festive. It's lively. It's a party. It's Miriam dancing and they're shouting and it's David dancing and it's the presence of God filling the temple. It's a party. It's the prodigal son coming home. It's a party. It's Jesus going to the house of sinners. It's a party. It's a celebration. Someone repents. All heaven is rejoicing that's why we're celebration church we're not here to celebrate ourselves we're here to celebrate God
0: Mm, yeah actually you're celebrating yourself with that little thing
2: come on man come on make a shout to God right now stand up right now on your feet We love you, God. We're not ashamed. Let me give you the, the, these last two, and then I'm just going to read through them. That's the most important thing the strength. The next is your mind, so you go from engaging to encountering. When you encounter God, that really has to do with your mind. Start with the physical, now it needs to go to the mind. What, we're, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's why these songs that you sing that we talked about there, it has to do with God's love, His faithfulness. You start to, in thanking God, you focus your mind. And what happens then, when you focus your mind on God, here's what happens. Here's the at the moment, here's the presence. Then all of a sudden, what does Jesus say? Behold, I stand at the door. Remember, love the Lord, you God, their heart, soul, Now you're taking
0: revelation out of context. That's written to a church that had locked Jesus out.
2: Mind and strength, with strength. Go to mind, focus, and now here comes Jesus at the door of your heart. Behold, I stand at the door of your heart and knock. If anyone opens, me and my Father will come in, and we will dine with him. See, engagement leads to encounter, and then that leads to Experience. The Lord inhabits the praises of his people.
0: You start- Has he handled the single biblical text correctly? I, I don't think so.
2: Start with the natural and mineral. he He inhabits. He's there. Now he's standing at the door of your heart. And he's saying, will you go ahead and abandon? No,
0: he's not. Read that in context. Jesus is speaking to a church that locked him out.
2: And yourself to me. Will you just Will you just let me in? And that's where it comes to that abandonment, that surrender. And at that moment
0: is when See, notice the emphasis. The emphasis is on your surrender, not Christ's. That's the problem here.
2: You experience the presence of God. Get a reprieve from the world. And God just gives you a little taste says, man, I know it's been tough. Listen, I love you. Hugging you. So you're going to be with me forever one day. Get out of that rut. But understand, to get out of a rut and stay out of a rut in life, you have to use God's vehicle of worship.
0: Father, we thank you for your word. Done. So you see how the replacement works? You take something good, like worship, worship is a good thing, and you make it the center and you displace Christ and turn it into a law rather than preach the gospel. The gospel is objective. It's all about what Christ has done for you. Then you talk about your surrender rather than Christ's surrender for your sins. Emphasis is back on you. It's not on Christ. You've put yourself in to Christ's place. You are the instead of Christ. That's how it works. You get it? That's why it's so dangerous. All right. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at PirateChristian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.